Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Three. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo Odor Jr., your host. And I have uh, my friend, Dr. Ryan Mullins. Uh, doctor, can you introduce yourself? Sure. So, uh, like I almost said, I'm, I'm Dr. Ryan Mullins. I am currently a senior research fellow at the University of Helsinki, um, working at this thing called the Collegium for Advanced Studies. And I've recently had posts at the University of Edinburgh, University of St. Andrews, uh, Cambridge, and Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, I know. I guess I have to ask you, like, formally, but you, you are a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I am a Christian, and I mainly do philosophical theology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can I ask you um, as to like what specific denomination of Christianity do, uh, do you subscribe? Are, are you affiliated to, or are you more or just yeah? Inter- yeah. Yeah. So um, in America, there's this really small denomination called the Christian Church. And that's the uh, that's the denomination that I'm that I'm an ordained minister in is uh, it's called the Christian Church, but it doesn't um, they don't have any branches like elsewhere. So I haven't been able to attend Christian Church in in quite a long time because I've been living uh, outside of America for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's mm-hmm. interesting. So I've just gone to whichever denomination is whichever local church I like the, the most. Yeah. Okay, well, just to give a brief um, introduction, I guess uh, can I ask you to uh, to tell your story of how you became a Christian, uh, just so that we can mm. get to know h- how you you are and why you are a Christian right now. Yeah, so I grew up in a Christian household. Um, my my dad was a youth minister at one point in time, and then he had served as an interim pastor at uh, different points in my life. Uh, so I think I, if I remember correctly, I was nine years old when I was baptized. Uh, so I've yes, like I said, I've just quite young. Um, but yeah, you know, I've I've just I've just I grew up in a Christian household, and then at some point when I was a teenager, you know, 
being a teenager, you start asking questions and you want to explore things more and you push back a bit. Mm -hmm. So I started asking more questions about, about God and wanting to know more about my own faith and then eventually decided I needed to study that in a, in a deeper way to really understand these things more because I just needed to know the tr like what was true and what was false. Mm -hmm. So why I became a Christian, grew up in a Christian household, why am I still a Christian is because I've continued to study the issue and it still seems true to me uh, after looking at lots of arguments for and against the, the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Okay, so but... I, would you s say that it's only because of the rational arguments that Christianity has that of why you're still a Christian, or you would you or do you also would you also say that it's because of like the Holy Spirit working in you or your assurance of salvation in Christ? Would you say that would be also part of the equation? I would like to say that's part of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a very charismatic person, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I I find it very very rare. Do I have anything that uh, I, that I could call a religious experience? Uh, mm -hmm. So it's I, I find it on very rare occasions that I can feel the presence of God. Um, mm -hmm. But I've had occasions where that that is the case. But just feeling the presence of God wouldn't necessarily tell me that Christianity is true because. You know, Christianity be false, and God could still exist, and I could still feel God's presence. Mm -hmm. So, um, I really do think uh, knowing that God exists and that God cares about me to some mm -hmm. extent, and that God has some kind of plan for me, I feel that being reaffirmed at different points in my life through yeah. some kind of awareness of, of the divine. But um, the Christian faith itself, that uh, a lot of it for me does hang on different arguments for and against the view. Yeah. Okay, so I guess you're more convinced of theism, firstly, right? So because of the rational mm -hmm. arguments that it has. Okay, so I yes. can. Okay, awesome. Well, I guess you. you uh, what is your main research or area of research about uh, in your career as of now? Yeah. So the the long term project for me is to look at rival models of God. Mm -hmm. So different models. Like, um, like classical theism, neoclassical theism, open theism, panentheism, and pantheism, to try to figure out how to articulate all these different models of God that you can see within Christianity, but also within lots of different world religions and different philosophical systems, and then try to figure out which models are coherent and which ones have the best arguments in favor of them and which ones have some very serious problems that, you know, try to figure out which one's true. Uh, and so I've... I've done some groundwork on this before so my first book is called the end of the timeless god mm -hmm. and so i mainly look at uh, just classical theism and in particular the attributes like timelessness and immutability uh, and i argue in that book that god cannot be timeless that god has to be temporal mm -hmm. some of the arguments are uh, arguments that would affect anybody who believes that god exists and some of them are more specific christian arguments that i wrote in that book as well uh, mm -hmm. Other things I've done, I've written several papers uh, arguing against um, this, this attribute called divine simplicity, which is part of uh, classical theism as well. Mm -hmm. And then um, one of the final big attributes for classical theism is what's called impassibility, which is about uh, God's um, emotional life and whether or not God can suffer. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I had a book that just got published in just a few months ago uh, called God in Emotion, where I look at some philosophy of emotion and try to figure out if God exists, what God's emotional life be like. And I, mm -hmm. I test classical theism against a view called neoclassical theism. So I'm trying to tease out some of those issues. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I've also done some other work on like the Doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation, um, personal identity over time, and a little bit on disability theology. So I've done some other stuff on some other areas, but the, the main interest for me really is just nature of God and God's relationship to the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess I'd like to ask you about what your, uh, what your points are on the rival models of God. Right. So in terms of, mm-hmm. like, I guess a model of God would be the, the Islamic God, the Christian God, panentheism God, and uh, several more, right? But um, what what would you, do, oh, have well, you concluded actually, no. about all of um, So as I see it, a model of God is just a set, a set of um, unique claims about the divine nature. Okay. And... Um, and so a model of God is not a full-fledged uh, philosophical worldview, nor is it a full-fledged like systematic theology. Okay. So, so for instance, with classical theism, you will find the classical model of God in Islamic thinkers, in Jewish thinkers, and in uh, Christian thinkers. Okay. Um, so a model of God really is just like one piece of the puzzle uh, mm-hmm. of, of a full worldview. Um, so it wouldn't really tell me – so if I look at a particular model of God and go, that's incoherent, it's false – that wouldn't tell me that a particular religion uh, was true or false unless some particular religion was like really deeply wedded to a particular model of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not clear to me that, that any of them really are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess when, when it comes to Christianity, right, there, the, it is very specific when it comes to wh- which model of God it has, right? It's it, and it's. Uh, well, they want a trinity. That's for certain. Um, yeah. But do they want to be classical? Do they want to be open theist? Do they want to be panentheist? I've got loads of friends in Christian theology who want to affirm uh, each one of those models. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's why I'm, that's why I'm really trying to emphasize, like, yeah, these models of God, they're not. Okay. They're not a full developed uh, yeah, systematic yeah. theology, so it's yeah, it's a bit more hard. Yeah, but a Trinitarian God, I mean, that's yeah, that's unique to Christianity. Um, okay. But there's other things you would say within a model of God. Yeah. Okay. Well, in terms of the um, your refutations of dev- divine simplicity, you know, I guess that that would include that God being a personal God, right? That and also having, um, you know, like in defense of Christianity, right? The, mm-hmm. Yeah. Would that that would that be the oh, case? Yeah. yeah. Um, sort of. So, divine simplicity says that all of God's attributes, or will actually, well, anything that is uh, intrinsic to God, is identical to God. Uh, so, when it comes to the Trinity, I mean, the, the classical theist uh, who's also a Christian, they want they want to say God's definitely personal, um, because He's not just one person; He's three persons. But those persons are somehow identical to the divine nature. And it's really hard to figure out how they're not going to be identical to each other. So it's really hard to figure out how you're going to get a trinity on divine simplicity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are lots of people, myself included, who would want to say, because I believe in the trinity, I have to reject divine simplicity. But then a bunch of other people are going to say, no, uh, because I believe in the trinity, I have to affirm divine simplicity. And I can't figure out what they're saying so i typically just want to go cool story bro but um you know like but yeah these are these debates so i don't think it's a matter of like do i from a personal or a non-personal conception of god um it's more of how do i make sense of it given yeah the claims of simplicity okay mm-hmm. well i guess that you have your own standard of what could make sense in terms of theology and de- deciphering the nature of God, right? So, for example, if someone mm-hmm. did say that divine simplicity does not contradict a trinity, 
how would you say tell them or show them that it doesn't make sense or no it it it's not it mm mm-hmm. yeah no, that's a good question uh, so there's a couple different ways so we've got two different strategies like one strategy could be just show that simplicity by itself is incoherent and i've published a bunch of arguments mm-hmm. to that effect uh, another one would be another strategy would be to say simplicity is not coherent with the trinity uh, i've only published I think a brief section on uh, only a few little brief discussions on that. Um, so with, I guess with, I'll, I'll stick with that strategy. So simplicity says again, anything that's intrinsic to God is identical to God. Now you gotta have three persons though, if you want a Trinity. Yeah. So you gotta tell me what a person is. And I have a story about what I want to say a person is. Um, people who affirm simplicity, they sometimes change what the story is supposed to be. So mm-hmm. I'll tell you what their story is supposed to be. So Boethius says, a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. Mm-hmm. And so you got to have some kind of thing with a rational nature. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so I'm supposed to have three of those in God? Uh, well, I can't have three individual substances of a rational nature in God, because God's supposed to be like one substance. And so I'm like, ooh, so I'm already, I'm already off to a really bad start here with this definition of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Maybe you can kind of adjust it a little bit and be like, well, I just need uh, three things that have um, some kind of thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. three thinking things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I got three different thinking things uh, in God. Well, the Father is a thinking thing. The Son is a thinking thing. The Holy Spirit, thinking thing. Cool. All right. Mm-hmm. And they're all one substance. Cool. All right. Well, now whatever is intrinsic to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're intrinsic to God. Now, whatever is intrinsic to God is identical to God. Uh, well, then the father's <laughs> identical to God. The son is identical to God. Yeah, uh, well, doesn't make sense. If they're identical, they're going to be identical to each other. Oh gosh, now I've got the father and son being identical to each other. I'm not supposed to have that because they're supposed yeah. to be different persons, not the same person. Ooh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So you've got these sort of problems that that eh, there's a long history of this of discussing mm. these problems. So these are not new problems we're running. Um, Islamic theologians and Jewish theologians and even Christian theologians have run these arguments saying like, this is a this is a problem here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that um but in I guess you're someone that does not take the position of divine simplicity of course, right? But mm-hmm. I guess it would be much harder to argue for like a trinity coming from let's say an argument from natural theology or or would you say that it, it it's not you could actually uh argue for the trinity if you coming from like natural theology or conclusions from mm-hmm. it. Yeah, no, that's, so you've got people like, uh, like Richard Swinburne and then like mm-hmm. Anselm and uh, uh, Richard St. Victor who are like, I can give you, I can give you the Trinity from like reason alone, from natural theology alone. I can give you the Trinity. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, lo- I, lo- I love all those thinkers. I think they're brilliant. Um, but this is one I die. I just I can't buy the arguments that they run. Yeah. Um, so I I, do, I think to get the Trinity you need it to be revealed to you. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. So I can only so for for my own thinking I would base the Trinity entirely on uh, Scripture and, and what's what's revealed in, in the the New Testament. I, I don't see how to get the Trinity out any other way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess that um, when we talk about the attributes of God, right? In it, they, uh, by definition, or in, in in specific models, God would be per- personal God, timeless, um, eternal, 
in terms of that, in terms of God co- correlating to time, what would be your position on that? Right. So I mentioned, uh, I think at the beginning that I wrote a book called The End of the Timeless God. So the argument there is that God cannot be timeless. Uh, and so part of the task now is to say that God's temporal or in time mm-hmm. and trying to articulate what that means. So I've written a couple papers on that and I'm working on a new book project, uh, trying to develop that idea more mm-hmm. to say that God's temporal. So that's one of the big questions is, yeah, what, is, what does that look like? What does that mean? But yeah, that's, that's my stance at least is that God has to be temporal. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it, th- that's if time actually exists, right? We're st- <clears throat> we still don't can even r- rationally prove that yet, or probably justify that time actually exists. Oh, or, um, I mean, there are these arguments that time doesn't exist. Um, I don't find them persuasive because mm-hmm. it certainly seems like uh, there's a succession of moments. Um, because I started this interview and then it had another moment and then another moment and then another moment and another moment and so on and so on. Uh, and if someone wants to tell me like, that's all just an illusion. I'm like, that's a, a really, really persuasive illusion. Uh, my goodness. <laughs> so I don't think I need, I don't think the burden is on proving that time exists. I think the burden would be on disproving uh, mm-hmm. that time exists because I think time is just fundamental to experience. Okay. Um, but I think deeper than that, uh, time is actually fundamental to um, how we predicate things. So uh, Ulrich Mayer is a he's a philosopher of time, and so mm-hmm. he says there's this thing called the uh, predicate time link. And so when I predicate something, so when I say like Elmo is a uh, Elmo is speaking, when I'm predicating that, I'm predicating that of a particular moment of time, like uh, Elmo is speaking now, or Elmo will be speaking soon, or mm-hmm. like there's there's always this connection to time when I when I speak about things and when I predicate things, mm-hmm. uh, and this is true on different theories of time. Um, so, so yeah, no, I, th- I think time is just, I think it's very, very fundamental to reality. I don't know I guess, how to get rid I guess, of it. But I guess that, um, the world. Yeah. What, what I mean by that is like similar to what Alvin Plantinga would say as a properly basic belief, you know, uh, and also what mm-hmm. others, yes. other philosophers like would say that you can't really prove that, uh, like earlier happened or whatnot, because you would be, you know, in, in terms of, uh, rationality, you would be, it would be a circular argument, right? Um, yeah, so I guess. Right, that, so yeah, what you're talking about is um, epistemic circularity, yeah, whereas yeah. I can't um, prove something without relying on it. Uh, and that's fine because um, these are not vicious circulars. Yeah, so I have to assume some kind of rationality in order to, like, because I have to use reason in order to, to think uh, about reason. So I can't prove through reason alone that reason exists um, because I have to use reason. And I use the same thing with my senses. I can't prove that my senses are reliable without using my senses. Uh, I can't prove that time exists without thinking about time time and thinking successively and being in time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would say that in terms of that philosophically, time is something that we would have to presuppose. Right or and I guess then if mm-hmm. you if you establish your argument whole argument on that, then you would have to establish it on this presupposition that time that if time exists wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah, you could do that. That's that's a way to go. Because um, that's yeah, that's definitely how I do it in my first book. I don't. I, I work with just the assumption that you know maybe God created time because that's a very standard view. 
Um, and so I'm just like, you know, maybe God created time. So we definitely know that. Uh, that's what classical theists want to say. Uh, and that's what a lot of Christians want to say is that God created time. So that's just kind of a given. Now, how does all this fit together? Ooh, it doesn't uh, with timelessness. So yeah, so I definitely do. Yeah, so I definitely just presuppose the existence of time and a lot of those arguments. That's Yeah, I think mm. that's accurate. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Cool. Well, you know, can can I ask you what your definition of time is? You know, because we're talking about time mm-hmm. and people have different concepts of time, but what what definition do you use in specifically in in yeah. Right. This one's tricky because um actually a lot of people don't have definitions of time. They usually ignore it. So like you've got that question from Augustine uh, where he's like, What is time? He's like, Well, I know exactly what time is unless you ask me, and I don't know anymore. And then he just proceeds to carry on, and I'm like, well, hang on, I want to know what that is. Um, yeah. So this is part of the big project of this new book, is to try to come up with a definition. And so here's the working definition I've got, and this is um, from a recent philosopher named uh, Marcello Oreste Fiocco, who also complains that nobody's asking this question, what is time? Uh, scientists aren't doing it, philosophers aren't doing it, theologians aren't doing it, no one's doing it, this is annoying, here's the definition. Uh, And so his definition goes like this. He says, time is a natured entity that makes change possible, that is the source of moments, and is the thing that unifies a series of moments. Uh And so that's that's, um, uh, Fiocco's definition. And I I think that's quite right. And it looks like uh, some definitions of time that I've seen in some different uh, ancient Hindu and uh, Jainist texts as well, uh, where they say that time is this eternal, uncreated substance that has several roles, like making things exist in the present, making change possible, uh, ordering the, the nature of events, ordering causation. Like These are the roles that time plays. Uh, so I think something like that is right, that, that time is this natured entity. It makes change possible. It's the source of moments, mm-hmm. and it's the thing that unifies a series of moments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in your concept of time, though, is time like a monad, right? In term, For example, in a deterministic worldview, a time is simply just uh, already, already like there. It's going bound to happen. Or would time have like different paths to take depending on some de- agent that has free will or, or some or something? What would you say? Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, so it, it forces me to, to draw a distinction I didn't make in my definition. Um, so I said time is the thing that makes, um, is the source of moments. And uh-huh. so what, you, what you're talking about, this, these monads, uh, those are moments of time. So a moment of time is the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, that's the definition for, for this episode, at least. Okay, okay. Uh, so there's a way things are. Um, but they could be otherwise. And so those are the moments. And so the question you're asking is about a series of moments. Uh, is the series, like the, t- the timeline, the way the moments are ordered, is that completely settled? Mm-hmm. Or is the future such that like it's kind of open and there's a bunch of different possible timelines that could come about? Like, is that, is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, that is. That is. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it depends what day of the week you ask me. So um, I want to say that we've got libertarian free will. So like I've got free will in the sense that I am the source of my actions. And at the next moment, I really could do one thing or another. So there's gotta be some kind of branching uh, mm-hmm. set of possible timelines. But if I want God to know the future though, there could be these possible branches, but one of them 
is going to have to be actual or is going to is, is going to have to eventually yeah. be the case yeah so there's this thing called the thin red line so if you look at a um, like a like a line and then you say there's all these like branches coming off of it the thin red line is supposed to be the one that like goes through all the possible timelines and says this is the one that's definitely going to happen mm-hmm. and so if i want the days of the week where i'm like foreknowledge give it a, give it to me you know i want all the foreknowledge that god could have Mm-hmm. Then I got to affirm a fifth red line, and then these other possible timelines. I'm like, I'm not really doing anything. Um, yeah, so so that's that's kind of that's 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 the view that I affirm right now. But I've got some worries about it, though. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you mentioned libertarian free will. I guess that you know when it comes mm-hmm. to when you're talking about time and causality, you know we 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 can't avoid free will, right? But so would that be your mm-hmm. position? that we as human beings, you know, created by God, we have libertarian free will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me define it a little bit more. So, um, so free will is just, like I said, I think it's like the source of your actions and you've got the ability to do otherwise. That doesn't give you libertarian free will though, yeah. because there's more questions to ask. So it's free will is whatever that is, which I've you know, given my definition of it. Then there's a further question, which is, is free will uh, compatible with being determined by something else? And if you say yes to that, then you're what's called a compatibilist. Yeah. Um, if you say no to that, then you're what's called an incompatibilist. Yeah. Exactly. And so I would be an incompatibilist, but that doesn't give you libertarianism yet, because you could be an incompatibilist and say everything's fully determined, there just is no free will. Yeah. You feel like you got some freedom, but you don't. It's all determined. Whereas a libertarian says, yeah, they're not compatible. Your freedom is not compatible with being determined, and you do have free will, and there is no in this determinism. Just that there just isn't that determinism in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's the libertarian, and so I want to go with that and say you do have free will. Things are not fully determined, and there you go. Okay, but that, I guess that gives you a huge burden of proof, right? Someone who takes mm-hmm. the, sure. the yeah the deterministic worldview could could actually prove. Uh, prove their worldview because you know of causality and empirical evidence and predictability. Yeah, but I guess. But why do you take the position of libertarian free will? Right, I, it's not something that you probably just concluded because of your uh, arguments or rationality. I think that you you're basing it off something. I guess your Christian worldview, or it, it does it, or is it just because it ma- makes more sense? Partly because it makes more sense to me. So uh, a typical claim is that um, free will is requ- is a requirement for moral responsibility. Uh-huh. And it seems to me that lots of people are morally responsible for lots of actions that they perform. And so have got to figure out what free will is then. But then you get into all these questions about determinism and, and, all, and all this. And so when I look at the different arguments uh, for compatibilism, I find them very satisfying because if something determines my actions and I'm like, well, I'm, I didn't have the ability to do otherwise and if something else is determining my actions, I don't really seem like I'm the source of my action either. So I feel like I got none of the things I'm supposed to get from freedom. Um, but there's these other weird worries too. Uh, so a lot of compatibilists today, they affirm something called event causation uh-huh. and they deny something called agent causation. Uh-huh. Uh, and so event causation is supposed to be the, like the events themselves or what are doing all the causal work. And I'm like, well, but I'm not an event. Uh, an event is supposed to be um, something like this. So an event is supposed to be Ryan having a property at a particular moment of time mm-hmm. um, or the occurrence of something at a time. 
So I'm like, there's something deeper to the world than events. Mm-hmm. And so saying that event causes stuff, I'm like, that's not the fundamental story of the world. What's doing the causing is supposed to be like substances with their powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's supposed to be agents. And mm-hmm. they're like, well, there can't be agents. Uh, you know, no, 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 no. That's not agents don't cause things. Events cause things. And I'm like, agents are more fundamental than events. Um, and so I don't, I don't know what you guys are talking about now. So <laughs> there's these kind of, I guess, other kind of claims going on in metaphysics that for me, I'm like, I don't, I can't make sense of, of all these compatibilist claims about event causation because I'm like, there's got to be, there's, events are not fundamental in the world. Something's more fundamental than events. Uh-huh. Uh, when you look at the very definition of an event and that's uh-huh. an agent is one of those things that's more fundamental than an event. So agent causation, I think, has to come back into the picture. Uh, and so a lot of these worries about there's just no such thing as, as agent causation. That, like, that, that looks like, like nothing more than just kind of an bleeding, though, right? Like, what is your argument? Yes, exactly. To, to prove that there is an agent other than just events. Oh. Um. So when I ask different people who work on free will, I'm actually part of a free will reading group right now in mm-hmm. uh, here in Helsinki, and so I was like, okay, all right, you guys all believe events causation. I'm the only one in the room who does not believe. Uh, an event causation. Tell me what an event is. And they were like, oh, I hadn't really thought about it. And I was like, okay, let me give you a bunch of definitions of events. And so I gave everybody the definitions of events. And I'm like, every single one of these assumes that there are something more fundamental, which is something like substances. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are those substances? Uh, I'm a substance, you're a substance. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I've got powers, you've got powers. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, then why can't I have agent causation? And they're like, hmm. Mm, okay, well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know. I guess. Um, I guess that. So it, it's more it, of just trying to get people on, to yeah. find their terms. Yeah, I guess it lies on the the that the difference in the definition of an agent and an event, right? Because if the, the mm-hmm. by definition there's no difference, then you can make an, your argument that agents cause, uh, you know, are are the cause, and they can make the argument that mm-hmm. events are the cause. So th- there's no difference. If if the, by that by that you mean. Uh, if that, that's what they mean. Um, it, if it came down to that, yeah, but the definitions of an events that a lot of them were relying on, they just hadn't reflected on it. And so then yeah. they realized, oh, wow, like these arguments against event, against agent causation, the, yeah. <laughs> they don't really hold any water because they're relying on circular definitions of mm-hmm. events, which is, I think, a very common thing. Um, a lot of times definitions of events are are usually quite circular um, mm-hmm. when you try to make events more fundamental. Mm-hmm. So you see this in time as well. So some people will say um, uh, that there's a relational theory of time. So time is just a relationship between events. And then you're like, oh, cool, cool, cool. All right, so tell me what an event is. And they're like, an event is the occurrence of something at a time. And I'm like, well, you already got time built into the definition of events. So you're supposed to tell me where time came from, but you're already presupposing time. Yeah. Events aren't fundamental then. Um, so this is, I think it's a very common problem in contemporary metaphysics where people are mm-hmm. constantly uh, pretending like events are fundamental and then they, when you start defining it, then you look at the definitions, you realize there's mm-hmm. something more fundamental and everybody is uh, thinking on event as. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I guess then um, when you say that events are, aren't defined properly, right, and they make their argument from that, but that doesn't really lead you to agent causation, right? It's... Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily lead you to that, but how do you le- get from from disproving event causation to having agent causation? Oh, um, all I need for agent causation, uh, agents. Oh my gosh, uh, 
agents are just about anything in, in a lot of contemporary banking. Um, so just agent is just like a thing that has some kind of causal power mm-hmm. to do something. Uh, and that's not necessarily like, like kind of agency that like I'm really interested in, which is like agents acting for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, like on some of these accounts of agents, just like a thing that just can have causal power. Well then like cells in my body, those are agents um, mm-hmm. on that like, you know, pretty thin view. And so I'm like, okay, cool. So those are all agents. And, and a lot of people who are working on agency and autonomy, they're like, yeah, 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 that's all fine. That's all fine. Um, and then like, uh, so, so there are, so a lot of these things, agent causation in some sense is already kind of built into a lot of these things, a lot of these different views. So, because it's just really intuitive that like substances with their powers, that's, that's what they, they, they cause things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's not a lot of so it's so it doesn't really take a lot to convince different people that there are things that do stuff. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't know what sort of argument to really run because it's just yeah, so many people are just like yeah, things okay. do stuff. Well, we I was yeah. asking uh, about time earlier, and, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. what what were what would your definition? I guess would you say that God is time, and what would you? talk about when it comes to relational versus absolute time what would you say about those topics yeah so let me tackle the relational versus absolute and then i'll then i can kind of give you my explanation for why i think god uh, is time or time is an attribute of god okay so like i alluded to earlier the relational theory says that time is just a relationship between events that's it um, but Ulrich Mayer and others, they point out there's a circularity in here. Uh, this is, and actually Aristotle was aware it had the same problem too uh, with the sort of circularity. So if you say that time is just a relationship between events, you're like, cool, all right, tell me what an event is. And so what Ulrich Mayer does is he looks at all the standard definitions of events. I think he gives like five or six different definitions that everybody mm-hmm. gives of, of events. It's all these major philosophers. Every single one of them presupposes the existence of time because it'll be the occurrence of something at a time, a substance having a property at a time, um, uh, something being located at a space-time point. Um, so it's they, every single definition of an event has time already built into it. And so it's like, well, hang on, you're supposed to tell me where time came from, but you're presupposed time in the very understanding of, of events. And so yeah. time is already existing before you come to explain it. So I think the relational theory is circular. It's false. Let's be done with it. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you got this absolute theory. What is that? Um, sometimes the debates about the absolute theory, they'll just say absolute theory just means time can exist without change. And it doesn't really tell you a whole lot. So what I've been doing in um, for my new book project is really trying to dig into that the history of that and get a better understanding of it. And so in some different Jainist texts and some different Hindu texts and some different texts even within like um, Isaac Newton and Samuel Clark uh, in the Western world, you've got this claim that time is this substance, this eternal, uncreated substance that plays these different roles that I alluded to earlier, like making things exist at the present, um, uh, making things uh, have a particular direction, explaining the order of causation, uh, explaining like uh, the idea of like a past and a future. Time's got all these different roles, but it's this eternal, uncreated substance. Mm-hmm. What you see in uh, Isaac Newton and in Samuel Clark and then in the Hindu tradition, uh, named uh, Raghunath Shiramani, what they do is they claim time is actually like an attribute of God uh, because God can play all that role. God is an eternal, uncreated substance. 
mm-hmm. who can be responsible for making change possible. He can be responsible for um, for making moments exist. He can be responsible for unifying a series of moments. He's responsible for making things exist at the present. So God is just time. Uh, is doing all the explanatory work here. So time. It's just an yeah, attribute of but God. isn't that a little bit of panentheism, I guess, that, you know, we are within time, experiencing time. Therefore, we are sort of experiencing the, the God as time. Mm-hmm. Would, wouldn't you say mm. it's sort of that? No, and here's why. So time is the source of moments. So moments of time are not identical to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a moment is just like the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. So it's like a location uh, as mm-hmm. well. It's like it's, it's a when things happen and they could be different at the next moment. Um, so things take place at moments uh, and in those moments are you know, brought into existence by, by time, but they're not identical to time. Um, so I exist at a moment and the moment's not identical to time. I'm not identical to time. Mm-hmm. But pantheism, pantheism needs to claim that like, there's just God that exists and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm identical to God in some sense. Well, I don't have that on this sort of story about God and time mm-hmm. uh, because God is time or time is an attribute of God. Cool. But the moments of time, those aren't identical to time. And what happens at moments, those are not identical to, to time. So no pantheism, no problem. Okay. I guess, but I, briefly, can you um, define the, what, what the difference is between creator and and creation when you also like include the, the by the definition of creator as someone who's omnipresent uh, and you know like everywhere and every when i guess <laughs> sure yeah everyone yeah yeah uh so what does it mean to be a creator and what does it mean to be created yeah yeah uh so what it means to be a creator is to be the thing that is like the the causal uh, source or the grounding of all contingent reality. Uh, so you create stuff uh, and you're not created yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the so, you know, so necessarily existent being who is like the sole ultimate ground of all the contingent stuff. What, do we, what does it mean to be created? Well, it means that, you know, you're brought into existence by, or your existence depends upon, you know, that thing that is the, the ground of being. Um, so was, I, I guess I've, this is a really common claim within like uh, Christian theology is like, oh, you've blurred the creator-creature distinction. I've never understood this because it's really easy to be the creator. Mm-hmm. You just have to be this necessarily existent thing that causes all the other stuff to exist. And to be a creature is just to be caused by the creator. That's it. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess so, you know when you say like caused, it mm-hmm. sort of falls into like Islamic occasionalism, doesn't it? Right, like everything oh. is caused by God directly. Uh, not necessarily. So occasionalism is the view that God directly causes uh, not everything just simply to exist, but like mm-hmm. everything to happen as well. So He causes you to exist. He causes you to have your thoughts. He causes you to perform your actions. Uh, and so on that on that view, an occasionalist view, uh, there are no agents other than God. God's the only uh, thing mm-hmm. with power, and He's the only thing that has any kind of freedom. Um, everybody else who's not occasionalist, even within the Islamic tradition, who go like, "Ooh, we don't want occasionalism. Come on, come on. Uh, we got people got to be morally responsible here." Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'll say, "Well, God causes you to exist, and He causes you to have power. Uh, but if He gave you genuine power, well, then you He's just sustaining you in existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got this power to like do stuff, like 
and go do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you just need God just to cause you to exist uh, and sustain you in existence. And you can go do whatever you want with that power. He doesn't cause your, your actions. He doesn't cause you to do stuff. Um, you don't need to go quite that far. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess when you now when you made the claim, I guess that God is time. So mm-hmm. that means that God is temporal, right? So what does it actually mean to say that God is temporal? Yeah. So, so um, to say that God, let me start with timelessness, so you can get a good like contrast here. So to say God is eternal is to say that God exists without beginning and without end. That's just all it means to be eternal. To say that God is timeless is you add a few things. So you say God exists without beginning, without end, because you want to say he's, he's eternal. But then you say he also exists without succession and without temporal location. So he exists without succession, meaning he doesn't do one thing and then another and then another. And he doesn't have temporal location, meaning he doesn't exist now. He didn't exist then, and he won't exist, exist uh, you know, henceforth in the future. Mm-hmm. If you say God's temporal, what you're saying is God is an eternal being, so he exists without beginning, without end. But you also say God has can have succession in his life. He can mm-hmm. do one thing after another after another, mm-hmm. and he can have temporal location because he exists now, because uh, mm-hmm. he's omnipresent. He better exist now, um, otherwise he's not omnipresent. But but doesn't God being temporal, I guess, limit his omnipotence because um, he he couldn't change otherwise what he what time I guess in the 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 temporal reality that he was in and the actions he took there wouldn't that be sort mm-hmm. of problematic hmm. um this is it's commonly claimed that it is i have a paper going there's no problem here um and so think about it this way so if god's temporal um the part of the claim is that if God exercises his power, like freely exercises his power, mm-hmm. what it means to freely exercise your power is to go from one state of not exercising your power to then exercising your power. So mm-hmm. it, so you have to have a before and after. You have to have succession. That's mm-hmm. just what it means to perform a free action. And I'm like, well, if that's just what it means to perform a free action, then like, how is it a limit on God's power? Um, like, the only way for God to use his power is to you know, bring about stuff, uh, and which entails succession. So if God couldn't do that, then he wouldn't have any power at all. Uh, so yeah. the very fact that God has power entails that God has to be able to perform, uh, you know, not doing something and then do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also turn around on people who are from timelessness though, cause they'll be like, well, you know, like, uh, you know, if God's like in time and he's like really restricted, I'm like, well, if he's timeless, he's really restricted. He can't be doing anything other than what he in fact is eternally and timelessly doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he couldn't do something else because he's already eternally timelessly doing whatever he's doing. So, you know, what, a, what, what kind of everybody, everybody's kind of got some kind of limits. And then God couldn't be temporal if he's timeless either. Well, that seems like a limit. So, I think where we're looking at are different metaphysical claims about where the logical limits of, of reality are. And when we look at these kind of objections, like this prisoner of time objection that you're pointing out. I think we're, what we're talking about is just, well, these are just the logical limits of reality, and those aren't real limits uh, in any meaningful sense. So there's no problem here. And okay. I think the someone who affirms timelessness, they're going to have to say the same thing if I want to turn around and be like, well, God's a prisoner of being timeless. They're going to be like, these are just the logical limits of what's possibility, mm-hmm. and those are not real limits. So it's not striking its power. Okay, cool. Okay, so um, what kind of structure might God give to a timeline, right? To, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's a bunch of different options here. So there's this thing called the ontology of time, which is what, like, what moment of time exists. And there's a lot of different views uh, on this today. So the traditional view is what's called presentism, which says that the present is the only moment of time that exists. Past no longer exists. Future does not yet exist. Uh, but today there's like there's a bunch of different views. Uh, so one possibility is past and present moments exist. Uh, and so like like time continues to grow. That's what's called the growing block view. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so the future doesn't exist on this view, but those past moments continue to exist. Uh, there's another view called eternalism, and this is like a very, very popular view today, which says that past, present, and future all exist. Um, so you've got uh, whichever moments happen to exist, all of those equally exist. So here we are located in the year 2020. That moment exists. Um, mm-hmm. All the moments of that year exist. The year 2025, all those moments exist as well. Mm-hmm. 1983, all those moments exist as well. Um, so all these moments just eternally exist at the particular location and in their particular order, but they all eternally exist. They never come into existence. They never cease to exist mm-hmm. on eternalism. And so those are different structures, uh, different ways God could uh, create the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what about, um, are you familiar with adjunct? adjuntism and four-dimensionalism, what would those be? Mm. Right. So these are views um, that are connect, closely connected to uh, the ontology of time, and they're going to be part of the story that you have to tell uh, how God structures time. So endurantism typically is affirmed alongside uh, presentism. So endurantism says there that objects uh, persist through time uh, with what's called numerical identity. Uh, so you exist as a whole world at once at whatever time you exist. So think about it this way. So people who are listening to this podcast episode, they can ask, how many Ryans are there throughout the duration of this episode? If you're an endurantist, you're going to say, there's just one Ryan throughout Mm -hmm. the duration of this episode. There's just numerically one Ryan, and he's just going from moment to moment to moment. That's it. Mm -hmm. A four-dimensionalist is going to go, not so fast, not so fast. So four-dimensionalism is held alongside an eternalist ontology. And so four-dimensionalism is a doctrine of temporal parts. And so what the what the four-dimensionalist says is that for each moment of this podcast episode, there's a numerically distinct Ryan mm-hmm. that is stuck at that particular moment. And so you've got a, so how many Ryans are there in this episode? Well, one for each moment of, 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 of this episode. Mm-hmm. They're all like interesting, really related, such that you can talk about there being some kind of like fusion, like some sort of like... Uh, object that is like the fusion of these different temporal parts, but there's different Ryans at each moment of, of this podcast episode on four-dimensionalism. Uh, so, so you get a very different uh, sort of count of personal uh, persistence through time uh, on the four-dimensionalist story. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, you know, um, being a Christian, I would say that presentism and edurantism would be the most preferred, I guess, or the one that would fit with my worldview. What, what, but what do you think? I, I, I think it better be, because uh, otherwise, I think you've got some really bad consequences. Uh, yeah. Historically, it's definitely the case that this is the, ma- the majority view. Um, but today, uh, ooh, I mean, there's there's a lot of people, there's a lot of different Christian theologians and, and Christian philosophers who affirm an eternalist ontology of time and a four-dimensionalist account of persistence over time. Um, and I, I think they just haven't really thought through all of the implications of that for Christian doctrine yet. 
Uh, so I've run a bunch of different arguments against the view. But so, yeah, so personally, I want to say presentism, endurantism, or just go home uh, because, <laughs> you know, you've got really dire consequences otherwise. Yeah. But what would the implications of eternalism be, right? For maybe for ex- creation or free will or life after mm-hmm. death? What would those be? Yeah, so let's start with uh, creation. So if you're a Christian, um, usually Christians want to affirm uh, the doctrine of creation out of nothing. But there are some Christians who are panentheists, and so panentheism is a model of God that denies creation out of nothing. So panentheists affirm something called uh, an eternal creation. Mm-hmm. And eternal creation means that God eternally exists with a universe of some sort. Uh, so you've got God and some kind of creation, co-eternal. Never a uh, state of affairs where God exists without creation. It's creation mm-hmm. and God are co-eternal. It's eternal creation. Creation out of nothing, though, wants to say something different. Creation out of nothing wants to say that God did not create the universe out of any like prior existence stuff. Um, but also, there is this state of affairs where God existed without anything, and a state of affairs where God exists with whatever he's created. Mm-hmm. So creation out of nothing like very clearly says God and creation are not co-eternal. There really is a state of affairs where God existed without creation. And you see this in lots of different medieval thinkers, a lot of early church thinkers. You see this in a lot of historians of Christian thought, like David Ferguson and uh, Alexander Brody, who are just saying, like, this is the view. Here's what you get, though, if you throw an eternalist ontology into the mix. So people like Catherine Rogers and Paul Helm, who are very good Christian philosophers, uh, they want to affirm... Uh, a view where God is timeless and you've got this eternalist ontology. And so they're really explicit. They'll say, you know, there is no state of affairs where God exists without creation. God and creation are co-eternal. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like creation ex nihilo anymore. That doesn't sound like creation out of nothing. That sounds exactly like what the panentheist was saying, where yeah. God and creation are co-eternal because it's a doctrine of eternal creation. Yeah. So it seems like if you got this sort of uh, eternalist ontology of time, you're going to get a doctrine of eternal creation and not creation at Knihlo. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me twist the knife one little bit uh, further. Um, so an eternalist ontology of time entails something called a permanentism. Uh, uh, so permanentism. Permanentism is defined by uh, Timothy Williamson as this view that everything that exists always exists. So they exist at their particular temporal location, but they eternally exist. So everything always exists. If that's the case, like everything's really permanent in reality. So you've got God and whatever he's creating, and they're all permanent. They're all just there. And it really is just this eternal doctrine of cre- this doctrine of eternal creation that the panentheist is affirming. It's not creation out of nothing. So if you're going to affirm eternalism, I think you just lose creation out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about free will in terms of that? What would be the implications? <clears throat> so if you want to say that free will involves your ability to do otherwise... Uh, then I think you're going to have a problem here because the future on eternalism is what's called ontically settled. Ontically meaning like it exists, like it's all the stuff that happens in the future, it all exists. Mm-hmm. And all the temporal parts of me that exist uh, after this moment, they're doing, they exist at their moments and they're doing whatever they're doing. So there's nothing I can do now to uh, you know, bring about a different timeline. There's nothing I can do now to determine what happens uh, at the next moment. There's nothing I can do now uh, to you know, have option A or option B at the next moment because whatever's happening in the next moment, that later temporal part counterpart of me, that Ryan, is just doing whatever he's doing. 
So there's no ability to do otherwise on this sort of story. Mm-hmm. And so that seems like a problem if you want well, the ability I guess, to do otherwise. You know, it will- when, you know, like Calvinists and Arminians, you know, they argue with this. But I guess if, if for a Calvinist, you know, eternalism wouldn't be a problem, right? Because they, in a way, they would argue that there is still human free will within God's predetermination and, and you know, election and whatnot. So what would right. you say about that? Like, how would you tell them, no, that's not, yeah. there's, there's a problem there? Yeah, so they are um, so like someone like Paul Helm. He is a Calvinist, and so he's a compatibilist, and he's inter- and he wants to affirm this eternalist view, and so he's going to be like, well, your problem is you're thinking in terms of like libertarian freedom, you know, you get, get rid of that, you know, maybe you don't really need the ability to do otherwise, uh, and so I'm like, okay, what do I need? Well, I need to be the source of my own action. Okay, so so I'm like, well, okay, let's let's look here for a second. So, so Elmo, actually, let me let me uh, ask your own intuitions about this. So imagine okay. that God creates an angel, mm-hmm. uh, and he makes this angel exist for only a single instant. Mm-hmm. Can that angel sin in that instant? Yes, I guess. If, okay, go on. Well, it's because, you know, like, if it's in just that instant, then it, the angel could do anything within that instant, I guess. Why? <laughs> Uh, sorry if my answer would is no. not sufficient. It's a, it's a, well, it's a, no, it's a weird one. It's a weird thought experiment. But actually, yeah. uh, John Dunscotus asked this question, uh, and a lot of people were like, "What are you going on? What are you? What? Why? Is everything okay at home? You know?" Um, so, uh, so Scotus asked this question, and, and most of his contemporaries were like, "No, because you exist for an instant. So, you exist for an instant, and what are you? Whatever you're doing at that instant, like that's all you can do. Because to do something else, oh, well, that would require." A second instant, mm-hmm. um, uh, because a moment of time again is like the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. So if an angel exists for only a moment, well, it's just just the way things are. Um, but he couldn't do anything else because he because he doesn't exist the next moment. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of people want to go. Well, no, like action takes time. It takes more than a single instant. It takes a series of moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to be able to be one way and then do something at the next moment. And so you couldn't perform a sinful action. Uh, so if God created you for just a single moment, and you happen to be sinning at that moment, well, you never had a you never had a previous moment where you chose to do that. You mm-hmm. never had a previous moment where you decided to do that. You just pop into existence doing some sin, and then you cease to exist. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, that's that's not well, it's not long enough uh, for me to actually perform a sinful action. And Scotus has got a weird story to tell you about how he can get you this, this sinful action. But um, a lot of people, including Paul Helm, don't buy that story. And so that's the key for this, is Paul Helm himself goes, Scotus, no, 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 no. That's, no, that's crazy. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay, cool. Um, so I've got all these four-dimensional uh, this sort of story, all these temporal parts laying around uh, on, on this eternalist ontology. Well, they only exist for an instant, and they're doing whatever they're doing, and God created them at that instant, doing whatever they're doing. I'm like, well, that's not really long enough time to meaningfully perform an action. Yeah. Uh, Helm, you've already admitted that uh, it's not enough time to do an action. Uh, ooh, ooh, okay, well, then there's not enough time to do any, any anything, even compatibilistically free. So, ooh, okay, that's a problem. 
Yeah, I guess it's it's like he dissected a part of what eternalists would have uh, their concept of time, and just you know presented it in a piece of plate and well they they wouldn't eat it at the same time I guess. <laughs> yeah, so I think what you've got going on here is a lot of different people they saw eternalism as a way out of different objections against timelessness yeah. and uh, against not having foreknowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. They're like, well, if I adopt this, I get a bunch of uh, really good answers. I'm like, yeah, you do. But you got to think through all of the implications of yeah. that. And when you start looking at all the yeah. contents of what comes with eternalism yeah. and then start drawing out the implications, I think you got problems. But nobody's really sat down to do all that hard work. And so that's mm-hmm. one of the things I'm trying to do is sit down to do all that hard work and awesome. go, all right, what does this look like? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Okay. Well, that that's satisfactory. Okay, but what about uh, eternalism for life and death? After death, what would those the implications be? Yeah, so I've, I've written on this a few times in the past. Uh, so um, so imagine I come up to you and I'm like, Elmo, Elmo, if you accept Jesus, mm-hmm. you will have life after death. And you're like, cool, mm-hmm. cool, cool. All right, tell me, tell me more because I want to dedicate my life to this guy if I'm going to get <laughs> life after death. And I'm, all right. Okay. Well, just so you know, you are a temporal part that is eternally located at this moment. You will never exist at any other moment. Other numerically distinct Elmos will get to exist at later moments, and they're going to get to enjoy heaven. You're okay. stuck here, though. Will you please accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, that sucks, man. Like, if life is already yeah. hell, like I'll, I'll be in hell for eternity, I guess, and then the future Elmos could go to heaven. <laughs> I guess. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> like, this moment's all right. It's like, you know, I'm having fun talking to you, so this is not a bad moment. There's some other temporal counterparts of me that are stuck at some really awful moments, and I'm like, yeah. ooh, sucks for that guy. <laughs> um, but if I'm if I'm one of those like, temporal parts that I'm like, this is awful, and then I find out that I hear that like a later temporal counterpart of me gets to enjoy heaven, I'm like, well... Well, well, screw that guy. Where, where's the good stuff for me? I'm the one who is like trying to be righteous. I'm the one who wanted to follow Christ. I'm the one who wants to know to know God more. I don't get any of that. Why? Yeah. Like what? So yeah, so you don't get you don't get life after death, and that um, sounds yeah, like that a good really meme. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess so. But let's talk about presentism then, right? So. Presentism is that there's just one me, right? And passing through all these successive moments. But what would that that like impact on Christian theology? So there's, it seems to me there's a lot of good things. Um, there are a couple potential worries, but uh, I'll say the good things first. Uh-huh. So the first thing you get, I think, is you can really clearly get your creation out of nothing if you want it. Because um, not everybody wants it. Some people, they want to be panatheists and say... I want my presentism, but I don't want my creation on that thing. But if you're an open theist, if you're a classical theist, if you're a neoclassical theist, you want creation out of nothing. And so presentism can give you that because you can really say there is a state of affairs where God exists all alone, and there is a state of affairs where God exists with some stuff um, because, you know, all the stuff that, 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 that exists, like, well, didn't always exist. Um, so presentism entails this uh, ontology called uh, temporaryism. And so Timothy Williams defines it as sometimes some things exist mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they don't always exist. So it's not always been the case that you and I existed. Um, so we're not co-eternal with God. The universe didn't always exist. Uh, all those moments didn't always exist. So they're not co-eternal with God. So you get your uh-huh. creation out of nothing. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and you definitely can get your life after death uh, if, if God's going to give it to you. 
Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, um, you get your endurantism, so you get this new, numerically one thing that's me, and that persists from moment to moment. So, if God gives me life after death, then I can have it. If God just wants to go, nah, you're all right. I'm just going to let you cease to exist. I mean, I guess it's up to God, but He promised me uh, life after death. So, yeah, on an endurantist uh, and a presentist sort of story, you can get that. Okay. Uh, it seems like you can also get the free will because you exist long enough. There's one thing that's you that persists from moment to moment. So I'm at this moment. I'm going to be able to persist long enough to make a decision and carry through with that action. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can go from to the next moment to the next moment. So I can get my free will, uh, supposedly, assuming determinism is false. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are supposed to be the good things you get. Awesome. Okay, so I want to ask you about what your basis for morality is, though. Um, would mm-hmm. that- Oh, I guess because you're a Christian, it's objective, but I don't know what the specifics are. Can you tell it? Tell, tell me. I don't have it fully worked out, um, but I did teach a course on this at, at Cambridge uh, one, uh, a few years ago. So I've, I've put some thought into this at least. So I definitely want to affirm a view called uh, moral realism. So I think that there, there are moral facts that exist, and they're mind-independent. So they're a fundamental feature of reality. Mm-hmm. Now, some moral facts are called like basic moral facts, and so they're necessarily true. So it might be something like don't cause unnecessary harm. That might be like a necessarily true moral fact. Uh, apparently, like uh, like someone like Richard Swinburne or um, John Don Scotus would say, the moral facts are actually even more uh, thin than that. Like these necessarily moral facts, uh, they're so thin they would even fill out the, the Ten Commandments. Um, so I'm like, okay, I don't really know what those would be, but, you know, whatever. These necessarily moral, uh, morally true facts. It's, it's hard for me to figure out how those would depend on God, though. Mm-hmm. Um, because if they are necessarily true, well, that's where explanation kind of bottoms out. Uh, so it's hard for me to see the jump from yeah. if I affirm the existence of necessarily true facts, moral facts, then, then God somehow grounds them. I, that's always been a missing piece for me in some of these moral arguments. Uh, so just pause right there, though. So did you have any questions on that, though? Yeah, so, you know, moral realism assumes absolutes, right? It's maybe just, mm-hmm. you know, like following the harm principle or maybe mm-hmm. something like utilitarianism or, or like like maximal well-being or whatnot. But I guess for me, it, it can't really get that from a purely materialistic worldview. It's, it's, it's no. yeah, it's it doesn't make sense, you know? <laughs> No, I think you need – so uh, the kind of view that I'm envisioning, I guess, is where the moral facts are they're, – they're, they're abstract objects just like numbers are. So the same way that there's necessarily true um, facts about mathematics and logic, there are necessarily true facts about morality. And so, and so these are all abstract objects, so I can't have a purely materialistic world. Um, I, I've, I've got these abstract objects. Mm-hmm. So it it's uh, it also means that you're going to uh, assume a an idealist worldview or something like a dualist in order for you to to like attribute more realism to something like a mathematics or a abstract mm-hmm. concepts of morality. Oh yeah, so dualist in the sense that um, there's physical stuff and yeah. non-physical stuff that exists. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. But if I've got God in my picture, I already want to affirm that anyway because um, I want to say God's non-physical. So yeah, so I'm, t- yeah, so I'm totally happy with that. That's fine. Okay. 
cool. Okay, so, but what what would you say though uh, about God, right? For example, there, if you are holding moral realism, what do you, what does it mean for God? What's in that equation? Is it is he the only what the pure or the absolute source of those moral obligations or the does the universe have a built like something like built-in moral obligations for us god exclusive what would you say yeah so the kind of view that i'm affirming is similar to a view affirmed by tj mawson at oxford uh so you've got god and you've got these necessarily existent moral facts but they're really thin and they're not action guiding mm-hmm. because it might be something like don't cause unnes- any unnecessary harm we'll stick with that one because that one's quite easy um well okay cool i've got an obligation not to cause any unnecessary harm uh, well, what is that? How does how, how am I supposed to what am I supposed to do with that? Well, I need to know what the non-moral facts are in the situation, and then and then I have to combine that with some uh, non-basic, non-fundamental moral facts as well. So I have to look at like human biology, for instance. Mm-hmm. What are some biological facts about humans? Well, if you stab them in the guts, um, that harms them. You know? Okay, mm-hmm. cool. That's a non-moral fact. Uh, so now, uh, what I look at that non-moral fact and I look at this like fundamental um, moral fact of don't cause unnecessary harm, I can start kind of piecing together a more action guiding principle, which is like this non, uh, non-basic, non more thicker uh, uh, moral fact of like don't go around stabbing people in the guts, you know. So here's what God can do with that. So God could you know here are all the these really basic, really thin non-moral, or sorry, these really thin necessarily uh, basic moral facts. Well, he can create all sorts of different kinds of universes with lots of different kind of life forms. And so what God would be doing when he creates a universe is he's going to be filling in all sorts of content about what the non-moral facts are. But in doing that, he's also going to be creating a whole bunch of different moral facts that are not not these fundamental ones. He's going to be creating these non-fundamental moral facts or these more Mm -hmm. fair moral facts uh, Mm -hmm. that are contingent. So when God creates a universe, he's, he's really filling in a whole bunch of stuff about the, the moral landscape. And so he's going to be creating all sorts of obligations. He's going to be creating um, all sorts of ways to, to become virtuous. Uh, he's going to be creating all sorts of ways to you know, satisfy utility. So God's really, when God creates a universe, he's really filling in a whole bunch of different uh, non-fundamental moral facts. Mm-hmm. Situation in, in the world, so God has a really big role to play in in morality on this sort of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can do more though as well. So, um, so if if you think virtues are really important, and I and I, th- I think virtues are important, and I th- want to say God's perfectly virtuous. God exemplifies all the virtues. Mm-hmm. God wants us to be virtuous as well. Mm-hmm. So, when I look at um, like Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "All those who thirst after righteousness, they will be satisfied at some point." And I'm like, okay, so God's gonna gotta help me do that. Well, how how is He gonna do that? Especially if I'm gonna die. Um, you know, it's not enough time for me to really like like uh, grow in my in my virtue. Well, God could providentially arrange things so that all those who thirst after righteousness will be satisfied, um, either in this life or the life to come. So God can play a big role in providentially arranging things so that you've got a, a moral universe. So he morally governs the universe, and so people can really grow in virtue. They really have opportunities to grow in virtue, and God ensures that those who thirst after righteousness really will be satisfied. Uh, so there's a, there's a big role for God to play in, in, in my moral uh, philosophy, but like I said, it's, I haven't 
it's not it's not as fully developed as, as my metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I guess you know um, you you've been an awesome uh, a guest on my show, and it's really been fun. But I, I you know I guess I got stuck at the at the first part. You know when I ask you uh, why you're convinced of Christianity, right? Because necessarily mm-hmm. being a theist doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're going to be Christian. Right. So, but you, but, but to me, I find it insufficient that you would say that you're a Christian just because you were raised in a Christian family, right? You're a very rational person, and I would assume that you have some basic, I guess, reasons as to why you, you you're still a Christian, other than mm-hmm. theism. So, mm-hmm. I guess, can you uh, establish that more? And then um, I, I would like to ask you after after that one last question. Sure. Um, so for me, it's it's the arguments about the resurrection of Jesus, and so I'm not an expert on these. I've I've read a lot on it, but I've I can't I can't summarize them very well. Um, so, the, but the arguments for the for the resurrection of Jesus, I think, are, are the that's 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 the, that's the big thing for me. So we have to do you have to look through this whole long process of trying to look at different historical sources and figure out what the historical witnesses really do say, and. I'm convinced that what the historical records really do say is that there is these appearances of a resurrected Jesus to uh, to, his, to his disciples. And now the next step there, and the arguments the way they typically go, is you have to try to explain why did they see this resurrected Jesus. You know, were they just seeing a ghost? Were they maybe they're just making stuff up? They just said um, that Jesus appeared to them, but they really didn't. So you've got to come up with some kind of explanation other than the resurrection in order to explain those those appearances away. And I find all those explanations r- deeply unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of this long process of weeding out all these other options, and then the only option left really is well, he really was resurrected. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the best people to really do this is is if you read N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, um, which is painfully long, uh, unfortunately, because it's like 700 pages. Uh, whereas like Richard Swinburne's like, I can do it in less than 200 pages. Like you know, come on, man. Like what? what why do you have to go through all this stuff? Um, but yeah, you, you look at all the different options here and. I think the only thing left really is that the resurrection did in fact happen. But you know, like I said, I'm not, I haven't, I haven't thought about how to summarize that argument in, a while, in quite a while, but that's mm-hmm. that for me. That's, that's, that's really the sticking point. That's why I would stay with Christianity. Okay, cool. Okay. Then the last question, uh, Dr. Mullins, um, if you were to give someone advice, you know, a Christian who's interested in say, let's say philosophy, like so, someone like, like you, what you're doing, you know, you're giving, I guess you're on the front lines and the, on the philosophical, uh, fields of, I guess, Christianity, what advice would you give for them? You know, if they were interested in this kind of stuff, which is also me. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's this is a tricky one because there's several different things you could do. One of which is you could just say, "I'm going to do whatever God's calling me to do," uh, but I really want to know a lot of philosophy and theology along the way. And in which case, you know, try to read as much as you can. Try to read uh, credible sources, uh, not just blog posts. Don't get all your information just from a Facebook post. Um, please don't do that because that's really awful. So try to read like actual scholarly sources as best as you can. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're going to do that, I mean, you're only going to be able to go so far. Uh, if you want to do something like what I'm doing, where you're, like, you're living and breathing like philosophy and theology all day, I don't know why you'd want to do that because um, 
it's, it's not all cracked up to be. Uh, but you know, if God's calling you to do that, then um, you're going to have to pursue like a deeper education in it. But here's the best piece of advice that I got from um, the late and great uh, Keith Yandel. So I was doing my master's and I was trying to figure out, do I want to do a PhD in this? And so Yandel, what Keith Yandel said to me is he said, can you imagine yourself doing anything else and being happy? Philosophy mm-hmm. on the side. You can read theology books. Can you imagine yourself doing anything else and being happy? And I said, no. Then he's like, then you're stuck. You got to go. You got to go through a PhD. And you got to go and, and like <laughs> into this awful market uh, and then, you know, and then go into this uh, very bizarre academic world. And I was like, okay. But if you can imagine yourself doing something else, like you should go do that. Uh, do theology and philosophy on the side. Like, yeah. Because um, this is not like a, not necessarily the best way to make a living. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Dr. Mullins, it's been a great uh, talking to you. And um, mm-hmm. I hope that I've been a substantial guest, a host, I mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. It feels like we've waited 360 fixed times too for this year. Plenty of time to rethink your grand entrance. In you enter. They think you're going in for a bear hug. You run for it. Secretly slipping a holiday scratcher in both back pockets. Boom. That entrance would be money. Like top prizes ranging from $500,000 to $500,000. Play along with holiday scratchers from the Virginia Lottery at a retailer near you. For odds and more information, visit VALottery.com. University of Maryland Global Campus has more than 20 years experience providing affordable online education to military service members and working adults. Offering low tuition, no-cost digital resources replacing most textbooks, scholarships for those who qualify, and more. Learn more at umgc.edu slash podcast.